verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty we should, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he was yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a blessing it is for me to share with you God's word this morning. Can't really improve on that too much. You know, in this country, we tend to use the term hero, in my opinion, rather loosely. I mean, we sometimes call the athlete a hero who hit the winning home run or made the winning shot or caught the winning touchdown pass. But in, in my opinion, the word hero ought to be reserved for persons like Sergeant First Class Paul R. Smith. Army Sergeant First Class Paul R. Smith was part of B Company, 11th Engineer Battalion of the 3rd Infantry Division. On April 4, 2003, Smith participated in building an impromptu prisoner of war holding area in Baghdad, Iraq. And during the construction, his unit was attacked by a group of Iraqi fighters. During the battle, an M113 armored personnel carrier was hit 
wounding the three soldiers inside. Smith saw to the evacuation of the injured soldiers. There was an aid station directly behind Smith and his team with already over 100 combat casualties. Smith and his team were the only obstacle between Iraqi attackers and that aid station. Smith climbed into a damaged M113 to man its 50 caliber machine gun and ordered the driver to reposition the vehicle so he could fire on the enemy, leaving himself unprotected and exposed to enemy fire. He went through three boxes of ammunition before his gun fell silent. Afterwards, Smith's team found him slumped over the machine gun. His armor showed 13 bullet holes. And before he died, he had wiped out over 50 enemy combatants and saved many American lives. Smith was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. When you count the lives of others as more significant than your own, I mean, that to me is the true definition of a hero. Now, I, I never served in the military, so if some of what I say isn't, isn't quite accurate, I, I hope you'll forgive me. But I, I would think that anyone who serves in the military understands that at some point you find yourself in a situation uh, like Paul R. Smith. In other words, you, you volunteer or enlist knowing that you may have to endure horrible conditions and even possibly lose your life. And, and, of course, that's why the training uh, is so rigorous. But not many volunteer with the expectation of losing their lives. You know, I'm sure everyone knows it's, it's a possibility in, in the back of their minds, but I don't believe that very many sign up specifically to suffer and die. So we should have the greatest respect for everyone who serves in the military because they know they know there is a possibility that they will sacrifice their life for their country and of course that means for you and me and that to me magnifies even more what Jesus did for you and me in fact not just for you and me but also for his enemies Jesus came not just to dwell among us but he came to save us which means he came to die for us. I mean, he knew that was the plan. He signed up. He enlisted to suffer and die. Those in the military know that that is a possibility, but they have, you know, that they might have to sacrifice their lives. But, but Jesus came for that express purpose. Isaiah chapter 53 describes Jesus and what he specifically came to do and did. Verse 2 indicates that Jesus was like a root out of dry ground. You know, for a plant to grow and thrive in a desert is very unlikely. Jesus' roots and his early development occurred in a very unlikely place. It was in the town of Nazareth that Jesus lived and grew up. And he, he had a, the town of Nazareth had a very poor reputation, as indicated by the words of Nathaniel, can anything good... Come out of Nazareth. So Jesus grew up in, a, in an area that, that really wasn't conducive for achieving much of anything good. And according to verse 2, you know, Jesus wasn't tall, dark, and handsome. 
you know, like King Saul was or like David was in the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't served in the military or won any battles like David had. Jesus had none of that going for him. People saw nothing special in Jesus as he was growing up, even up until he began his ministry around the age of 30. And this is one of the reasons he was rejected. I mean, his appearance and accomplishments were not significant up until that point in time. He was familiar with grief, it says, suffering. Or that word suffering can also be translated as sickness. You know, it sounds as though Jesus' life wasn't all that healthy. According to the Mayo Clinic website, stress can cause physical, emotional, and behavioral problems. Stress can cause headaches, muscle pain, chest pain, fatigue, stomach problems, sleep problems, and the list goes on. And I don't think any of us can imagine the stress Jesus experienced once he knew what he had come to do. Once as a child he came to the realization, this is what I'm here for, which had to have had some effect on his health. Jesus was, from a human standpoint, probably one of the most unlikely candidates at that time ever to become the greatest man who ever walked the earth. Jesus was despised, according to Isaiah 53, by many for his teaching, according to verse 3, which was nothing but truth, obviously. For his miracles at times, because they were performed on the Sabbath, which did nothing but heal people and bless people. He was the greatest example of love and humility the world had or ever will see. And yet, it says, he was held in low esteem. People did not think very highly of him. And even still today, there are people who do not think very highly of him. I mean, it it demonstrates how misplaced the world's priorities are. God told Samuel, remember when Samuel was, was trying to identify who of Jesse's family was going to be the next king that God was going to select. God told Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Even today, the world continues to idolize the wrong people. And yet, according to verse 4, he took up our grief or sickness. You know, sin isn't just a rebellious act that we perform every so often. Sin is a disease. In 1908, Dr. Claude Barlow became a Baptist medical missionary to China. And while he was there, a strange disease began killing off a lot of the Chinese people, and, and there was really no known cure. And since there were no research laboratories over there for for his research in China, he was able to obtain a vial of disease germs and came back to the U.S. And on his way back to the U.S., as he's sailing back, he injected those germs into his own body so that he would be infected by the disease. And so once he got back, he went back to his former school, John Hopkins University, so that his former professors could kind of monitor Uh, his symptoms and find a cure and they did and they gave him the cure and he was cured and he took that cure back to China you know in a sense but of course on a much grander scale that's what Jesus did 
You know, he was pierced, it says, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and his wounds healed us. So Jesus took our disease into his body so that we could be cured. The most humble, loving, selfless human being ever to walk the earth ended up suffering for everyone else's pride, ignorance, selfishness, and hateful behavior. So, you know, if you think life's been difficult for you, your life's been royalty compared to his. And the reason this happened this way was because of our ignorance and stubbornness. Verse 6 says, like sheep, we go our own way, even though it's the wrong way at times. Totally focusing on ourselves and what we need or want. And God saw and he understood that our, our situation was totally hopeless. So in order to save us, God placed all of our iniquities on him. Even the iniquities that you haven't committed yet, he has placed on Jesus. You know, one of the definitions of a hero, according to the dictionary, is one who is admired for his achievements and noble qualities. I mean, there's no one that even comes close to Jesus in regard to achievements and noble qualities. And yet half the world refuses to acknowledge that. Probably what's more amazing to me than anything else written in verse or in chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. You know, he didn't object. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't complain. I complain when the waitress doesn't fill my drink in a timely manner. Joe Crow explained some of his experiences while serving in the infantry in World War II in a series that was published by PBS called Life in the Infantry. And here's an experience that he related. He said, pinned down under relentless artillery fire on the slopes of Sugarloaf Hill on Okinawa, surrounded by the rotting corpses of dead Marines and Japanese soldiers alike. Crow and his fellow Marines faced some of the worst conditions of the war. Rain pounded down more than a foot in a week, washing maggots and feces into the Marines' foxholes. The stench was overpowering. There was no relief from any of it day after day. If a Marine slipped and slid down the back slope of the muddy ridge, he was apt to reach the bottom vomiting. Crow said, I saw more than one man stand up horror-stricken as fat maggots tumbled out of his muddy dungaree pockets and cartridge belt and legging lacings and the like. He said, we didn't talk about such things. They were too horrible and obscene, even for hardened veterans. I believed we had been flung into hell's own cesspool. You know, when I read something like that, it becomes more difficult for me to complain about the service I receive at Walmart or the bank or wherever I happen to be. And verse 8 of Isaiah 53 reads, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? You know, Jesus was unfairly tried and convicted by a biased crowd, and no one really made much of an effort to defend him. Or considered that his death was of any significance, which also means they didn't really consider his, that his life had any significance. Verse 9 indicates that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You know, he was crucified as a criminal between two criminals, even though he had done nothing wrong, had broken no laws. 
and was buried with the rich. You know, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who provided the tomb for Jesus, uh, for his body to be buried. But the rich were primarily the oppressors in society at that time. You know, what a contrast. You know, to, to experience the most humiliating death, treated as a lowly criminal, and to be buried with the oppressors, even though he was the champion of the oppressed. You know, what irony. It reminds me of the verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you by his poverty might become rich. And yet, as verse 10 indicates, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the will of God prospers in his hand. Verse 11 explains what prospered. It says, Jesus made many righteous and bore their iniquities. You know, and in a sense, our veterans have done something similar for us. And those who have left their lives out on the battlefield, the prosperity that we enjoy today is in very much in part due to their courage and service and sacrifice. You know, maintaining our freedoms, men and women who gave up their freedom, men and women who put their careers on hold so that we could continue to pursue ours. My question for you this morning is, does the will of God prosper in your hands. What, what blessings have you brought to others as a result of your faithfulness to God's will? Have you shared the truth about Jesus with anyone? Have you ministered to the needs of others here or in a foreign country? Have you fed the hungry? Have you clothed the poor? How has the will of God prospered in your hands? Gilbert and Eleanor Knott Krauss were a wealthy Jewish couple living in a home near Philadelphia in early 1939 and were determined to do something about the mounting atrocities against Jews in Nazi Germany. So in April of that year, they sailed on separate ships across the Atlantic Ocean bound for Nazi Germany and determined to rescue 50 Jewish children from Vienna and bring them to safety in the United States. And most Americans at that time, they didn't want to have anything to do with this threat of war that was in Europe and, and very, had very little interest in permitting Jewish refugees into the country. There was a bill in Congress that was called the Wagner-Rogers Bill, which would have provided emergency visas to thousands of children who were in danger. But it never came to a vote in Congress. Some Jewish leaders even tried to talk Gilbert and Eleanor out of going ahead with this rescue mission. Uh, because it might stir up more anti-Semitism, which was already, I guess, running rampant in the United States. But the Krauses defied both public opinion and the effort to derail their rescue plan. They cunningly found a way to get around America's harsh immigration quotas and ultimately brought back the single largest group of children who were allowed to enter during the Holocaust. And this is a, a picture of that. And afterward, Gilbert and Eleanor just quietly resumed their lives and their stunning mission disappeared from memory. You know, there's a, there's a powerful message beyond that story that is really still relevant today as, as it was then. 
And this is the message. That ordinary people can carry out extraordinary and selfless acts. See, because the world continues to be filled with human tragedy and suffering and, and lost souls, and yet only a few choose to assume the role of heroes in the face of such danger and such adversity. And so the stories of those who make that choice, you know, are inspiring to the rest of us. Whether or not, you know, we then act on that inspiration is the challenge that all of us face. You know, what might have happened if, if a thousand more people acted like the Krauses in the late 1930s? You know, what, what might happen tomorrow if a thousand people decide they too can rise to the challenge of becoming an unlikely hero? You know, Jesus once said, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. For God's will to prosper in your hands, it doesn't have to be something written up in the newspapers or in the history books. The crucifixion of Jesus that God proves that God can transform the most vile, despicable human act and turn it into something magnificent. If we will follow his will, if we will allow his will to prosper in our hands. God can move mountains with the most insignificant expression of love because moving mountains as the scriptures indicate only requires a mustard seed of faith. So today we express our gratitude to those of you who have made sacrifices in your lives to serve your country. And we honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for their country. Although that is such a small token of our appreciation, we, we can never repay them. The greatest act of heroism, however, was performed by the Son of God who came for the express purpose of suffering and dying for you and me. Today and every day, we honor that one solitary life. He fought the spiritual battle that we had no hope of winning on our own. He fought it by himself. He gained the victory for us. We didn't have to lift a finger. By grace, you are saved. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're subject to the invitation. Please come as we stand and sing.